The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, good morning, Ecclesia. It is a pleasure to be here with you all today. My name is Ruth Lopez Turley, and my family and I have been attending Ecclesia since 2010. Uh, here's a photo of my family, in case uh, some of you don't know all of us. My husband, Steve, is a church historian, and he teaches at Fuller and Truett Theological Seminary. He has been leading a, a small group here at Ecclesia for 12 years, and he is the primary child care provider for our two teenage boys, Alejandro and Gabriel. So I am originally from Laredo, Texas, if any of you all are familiar with Laredo. Uh, I grew up on the border, and you know how sometimes you don't realize just how unique your upbringing is until you leave, and then you see it from a different perspective. Having uh, grown up on the border means that I grew up with lots of dualities. I grew up speaking two languages, I was educated bilingually. I had a bilingual education throughout my entire uh, K-12 education. I uh, acquired two cultures. I even had two names. At school, I was called by my first name, Ruth, and at home, I was called by my middle name, Naomi. So I grew up with these dualities. And in particular, one duality that really stood out to me is the fact that I heard two versions of the gospel. The first version is the gospel according to my mother. Here is a uh, photo. In fact, this is the only photo that I have uh, of my mother holding me as a baby. So that's me on her shoulders. And the gospel, according to my mother, went something like this. Rich people are evil. They have created systems that benefit them. That's why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But someday God will set things right. That is the gospel according to my mother. Now for some context, my mother had firsthand experience with systems that were not set up to help the poor. My mother grew up extremely poor. In fact, her mother died when she was only nine years old. And at the age of nine, she experienced homelessness, neglect, and abuse. But somehow, she managed to find her way to an orphanage. She managed to get an eighth grade education and later got her GED, and then spent a lifetime working extremely hard, never making more than minimum wage, never had any benefits, never had a paid vacation, frequently working double shifts, frequently working night shifts, never getting enough sleep, never having any control over her schedule. To this day, 
I have never seen anyone work so hard for so little. So it is in that context that my mother shared the gospel with me. Someday, God will set things right. That had extreme and profound meaning to someone experiencing that kind of life. On the other hand, I heard a different version of the gospel at church. And that version of the gospel went something like this. Jesus died for our sins so that we might have life after death. Emphasis on after death. You see, that version of the gospel to the ears of the poor and the marginalized is anemic. I even heard people in my church say things like, you must accept your lot in life, and in the face of injustice, turn the other cheek. Those felt like very different versions of the gospel, and they didn't sit right with me. Then I became a sociologist. Through a series of miracles, and I do mean miracles, I had the amazing opportunity not only to go to college, but even to attend highly selective universities. In fact, I use the word miracle because I now know that the chances of someone with my background doing that are less than 1%. So if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. In addition, the reason why I use the word miracle is because I can point to specific examples when I asked for God's help and God intervened to make that happen. For example, when I was 16 years old, I had the amazing opportunity to go to summer school at Harvard. That was a miracle in and of itself that I got accepted into this program. But what was even more miraculous was finding the money to go because they did not offer financial aid for summer school. So at the age of 16, I set out on my very first fundraising project, and I went around town in Laredo asking for help. I asked local businesses for financial assistance, and I had older siblings that were working, and they also helped provide some financial assistance, including three older brothers that worked at a Casa de Cambio across the border. Casa de Cambio is a money exchange business. So I had to cross the border by myself at the age of 16 to pick up $1,500 in cash because it was a money exchange business. Now this was a lot of money, especially back then, and especially for someone like me. $1,500 in cash that I then had to bring back across the border. In fact, I have a photo of that bridge 
This is the International Bridge in Laredo that I crossed, although back then it did not have those nice awnings. You just had to walk in the direct heat of the sun. But I had to bring $1,500 back across the border. Now I knew that they always inspect your belongings when you cross on foot. I had seen them confiscate all kinds of things in that border. And I knew that there was no way that I could tell them the truth. I could not possibly say this money is for me to go to Harvard. Because there's only one explanation, right? For a 16-year-old kid, a very poor 16-year-old kid, crossing the border with $1,500 of cash. There's only one explanation. So I couldn't tell the truth. But I crossed that bridge praying, more like begging God to intervene. You know what kind of prayer I'm talking about? Have you ever had that kind of prayer? We're just desperate. You don't know what else to do. You just beg. And that day, they did not inspect my purse. And that changed my life. It set me on a completely different trajectory. I ended up studying at Harvard for that summer school program, later went to Stanford, then back to Harvard for my PhD. I mean, just it, was, it set my life in a completely different trajectory because God intervened, made it obvious. God intervened in a miraculous way to make the point that God was doing this work for a reason. So I became a sociologist, and one of the first things that I learned is that my mother was right. There are a lot of systems that are set up to benefit the rich more than the poor. It is crazy, in fact, and I'm going to walk you through just a couple of examples. Bear with me. We're going to take a little sociology course for just a few moments because this is important. I want you to see concrete examples. So the first example is the fact that there are lots of government subsidies that actually benefit the rich more than the poor. These are government subsidies. For example, let's take um, mortgage interest deductions. Are you all familiar with mortgage interest deductions? So that's based on owning property, and the more your property is worth, the higher the deduction you get. But if you look at this graph, you'll see that the value of mortgage interest deductions is much higher than the value of housing subsidies for the poor. And yet, for some strange reason, one is stigmatized and the other is not. One is criticized and the other is not. This is just one example of a system that just seems to be set up to be in favor of the rich rather than the poor. And by the way, some people are tempted to say, oh, it's because they've, you know, they've earned it, they own the property, they've earned it. Well, first of all, just putting aside our long history of barriers to home ownership for certain groups of people, even today, in Houston, we have documentation that when you compare similar houses, same specs, 
even if they're in similar neighborhoods with similar amenities, but if one of them is in a predominantly Hispanic or black neighborhood, that property value is 60, 60% lower than the value of the same of similar property in a predominantly white neighborhood. Why is that? Completely wrong, completely unfair, and yet we reward property values. We reward property values. So that's a system that is completely messed up. To give you another example of a system that is completely messed up, this is in my, in my own research area, which is, uh, I specialize in the sociology of education. And in our education system, we see huge disparities by economic class, by race and ethnicity, right? And often, what we hear is people like, blaming the teachers, blaming the, the le school leaders, blaming the students themselves, blaming their families for not caring enough about education, blah, blah, blah. They're focusing so much on these individual level factors, but the fact is, and I can say this because this is the research that I do, the fact is that the strongest predictor, the strongest predictor of these educational disparities is the racial concentration of poverty in our schools. That's a systemic factor. That's not an individual level factor. That's a systemic factor, but we conveniently ignore that. In fact, it's so problematic that here in Houston, the differences look like this. So black and Hispanic students are five times, not 50% more likely, twice as likely, three times as five times as likely to attend a high poverty school as white students. That's here in our own community. We are allowing this to happen. This is a, this is a huge disparity that actually results in huge disparities in their outcomes. So the difference between poor and non-poor students in terms of their test scores is equivalent to 2.2 years of schooling. The difference between white and Hispanic students is equivalent to three years of schooling. The difference between white and black students is equivalent to 3.6 years of schooling. That is more than a quarter of their K-12 education. That is a system that we have allowed to take place. So yes, when I became a sociologist, I learned that my mother, with only an eighth grade education, was right. She knew what she was talking about. There are really messed up systems in our world and we are allowing them to happen. But God will set things right. So there is a woman whose words have shocked me in a way that is so, I think these words are the most radical and prophetic words that I have ever heard 
and her words have inspired generations, including my own mother and including me. They have inspired me to do some things that many people consider crazy and impossible. And those are the words of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I want to share with you today her words, the Magnificat. These are the words that she spoke when she met her cousin Elizabeth, who was also expecting. And with Jesus literally inside of her, Mary said these words that I'm going to read to you slowly. And I want you to do something that is very, very important. I want you to take her words at face value. Don't try to soften her words. These are Mary's words. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Don't, don't soften her words. Don't try to find an alternate explanation. Just take them at face value. Ready? My soul lifts up the Lord. My spirit celebrates God, my liberator. For though I am God's humble servant, God has noticed me. Now and forever, I will be considered blessed by all generations. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is God's name. From generation to generation, God's loving kindness endures for those who revere him. God's arm has accomplished mighty deeds, the proud in mind and heart. God has sent away in disarray the rulers from their high positions of power, God has brought down low. And those who were humble and lowly, God has elevated with dignity. The hungry, God has filled with fine food. The rich, God has dismissed with nothing in their hands. To Israel, God's servant, God has given help as promised to our ancestors, remembering Abraham and his descendants in mercy forever. Those are powerful, powerful words. Mary is describing a world flipped upside down where the rich and the lowly switch places, the proud and the humble switch places. This is the kingdom of God as envisioned by Mary, the mother of God. This kingdom is not, a, she's not focusing on life after death. After death, we don't have to worry about hunger and powerlessness. She's talking about life now, 
She's talking about life right now. She's saying this applies, this life applies to us now. The work of justice applies to us now. God's liberation applies to us now. For those who are trapped, literally trapped in systems of injustice, this liberation applies now. This isn't some far off distant future that has nothing to do with us. This is about our community, our life everlasting that begins now. Now don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that, that the gospel has nothing to do with life after death, of course it does, but it also has to do with life now. If we ignore the present, we are gutting the gospel. This is the gospel of God. Now, what can we do? What can we do to help bring about this upside down, actually I should use the phrase right side up, this is turning the world right side up. This is creating a world as it should be, a world of justice and God's love and God's mercy. So how can we do that? When we pray the prayer, thy kingdom come, what that means is we are literally asking for God's kingdom to come and replace this messed up kingdom. We are asking for this kingdom that Mary is describing to come and replace this messed up kingdom. That is what we are praying when we say, God, kingdom, come. So what can we do? So I'm going to make a few recommendations and perhaps uh, because I still think in dualities, I'm going to talk about dualities in terms of our response, our actions. So the first is a response at the micro level and then a response at the macro level. So at the micro level, what we should do is we must absolutely help those in need. And I mean generously. We must help by being as generous as God has been to us. Unfortunately, we have an extremely long way to go, especially those of us who are not poor. We have a very long way to go in terms of our generosity. And in fact, I wanna share with you, again, because I'm a sociologist and I like graphs and I like to look at trends and patterns. Um, I need to share with you, because this is making a very important point, IRS data. This is data from IRS that shows the percentage of giving based on our incomes. And you can see very clearly that the most generous among us are the poor, the most poor. People whose incomes are below $25,000 a year are the most generous among us. On average, they give about 12.3% of their income. Meanwhile, those of us who make, say, $500,000 a year give only 2.6% of our income. Shame on us. 
shame on us. And then perhaps when I see graphs like this, I think, oh, this is why my mother said rich people are evil. It's not just about the systems that have been put in place to benefit the rich more than the poor, but it's also about this, this tremendous lack of generosity among those with resources and meanwhile, those who are the poorest among us are the most generous. So I want to challenge each of us in this room to look at that graph and find your place on that graph. I don't know what your incomes are, but you know what it is. Find your place on that graph and ask yourself, how much am I giving? How generous am I being? Am I truly desirous of helping those in need and helping to bring about God's kingdom of justice, which is really about flipping resources and power and all of those things that Mary so eloquently described ages ago. That's at the micro level. At the macro level, our response needs to be that we can't just stop there. This is actually just the beginning. Helping those in need is just the beginning. We must also eliminate need. That refers to changing the systems that create need in the first place. Those systems that my mother was talking about, those systems that I've learned about as a sociologist, we must change those systems. So those of us that are in positions of power, and I know that there are some of us in this room that are in positions of power, we must use it to change those systems for good. We must create systems of justice, systems of mercy. We must do that. And for those of us that are not in positions of power, at the very least, we can vote. We should vote and vote for people that are working to create those systems of justice, those systems of mercy. We can do that. And last, we must pray this prayer that Mary prayed. We must mean it. We must ask for God's kingdom to come. And we must say these words. So I'm going to close our time by repeating Mary's prayer. But I want you to say it with me, in particular, that the, the part that's in bold where it starts with the switching that will take place. So say it at least in your head, maybe close your eyes and ask for God to tell you what your response should be. What is your role in bringing about God's kingdom of justice and mercy now? Please pray with me. The proud in mind and heart God has sent away in disarray. The rulers from their high positions of power God has brought down low. And those who are humble and lowly God has elevated with dignity the hungry God has filled with fine food. The rich God has dismissed with nothing in their hands. God, today 
I ask for your Holy Spirit to guide each and every one of us in how we should respond to these radical and prophetic words spoken by Mary. God, I pray that you will fill us with your spirit as you filled her, literally holding Jesus inside of her. God, give us your Holy Spirit to have the courage to do what is right, to accept your gospel, your good news is that you are the God of justice and mercy and liberation for those in need. God, give us your spirit to do these things, to take part in the kingdom work, this exciting and amazing work that you are doing among us now. And may we pray with the faith that Mary had, using past tense, this is as good as done. Your promise is fulfilled. God, we pray these things humbly in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.